0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning. As we come to the fourth sign that Jesus gives to point to his deity, to his lordship, to who he is. As we've talked about, John uses seven signs in this book, and and this is one that takes a little different Approach than the others do. The others had to do with healing, or at the wedding feast in Cana, turning, turning the water into wine. And so here we come to the place where he looks out on the crowd and does something that is totally and completely unexpected. I want you to look at this as we as we think about this miracle this morning, though this sign of our Lord, and I want you to think about it more than just. The miracle that it is it is a miracle and we will talk about that in its completeness without a doubt but i want you to i want you to also think about the response of the people because i think in this passage jesus is showing us through this miracle through this sign he's showing us not just the attitude of the people there in palestine in his day but the attitude of many people today even many people that sit in churches When they come to the lord and when they think about the lord and when they think about what it means to be a christian what it means to be involved in church i want you to think about that as we come to that this morning and as we look at that hear the word of the lord as i read from john chapter 6 verses 1 through 15 and after these things jesus went away to the other side of the sea of galilee or tiberias now the Indication here is that he's going away with his disciples to just try to get away from everything for a while, to kind of retreat with them. But a large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming, that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, one of the disciples, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone even to receive a little bit. The word sufficient there I think is important for the entire context of this passage that we'll see in a minute. 200 denarii. Now, one denarii was about a day's wage. So Philip's saying, even if we had 200 days worth of salary, of wages, we wouldn't have enough to feed these people. And then one of the disciples, that is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus has just performed three miracles over a period of time that has literally fascinated the people. First of all, at the wedding at Cana, the the groom ran out of wine for the wedding feast, and Jesus said, take the pots, the ceremonial pots of water, whereby the, the hands were washed and people were bathed and prepared to go in for a a ceremonial sort of way and he said take those pots and 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 he turned those water that ceremonial water into wine not just any wine not just a ordinary wine but by the testimony the only people uh, of the people there the best that they had had all day that that the groom was very unusual in this in that he saved the best for last usually the groom brought out the best first and then when everybody kind of got a little happy, then he brought out the, the weaker wine so nobody would really notice it, but said, no, the best came last. That's very unusual, but Jesus turned it into wine, showing that the old ways, the old legalistic, the old legal ways of the law were giving away to the gospel, the truth that was coming through Jesus Christ. Later, he healed the nobleman's son, not by even touching him, but just by saying to the nobleman, go on back home, your son's well, and and as they met his servants, as he met his servants on the way, he was told that your son is now alive. You thought he was dying, but he's alive. Jesus healed, showing that his power is, is beyond just being able to do something close up. But his power is an omnipotent power. It's an omniscient power. It's, it's an omnipresent power. It's everywhere at all times. Then we saw a couple of weeks ago where he healed the, the, the man by the pool in Bethesda who had been crippled for all those years. And he merely looked at him and said, get up, take, stand up and take your, your mat, take your bed and walk. And he did that. And, and all of a sudden, because it was on the Sabbath, it stirred up a great controversy because all of a sudden the Pharisees were saying, oh, wait a minute. He's not only te- doing something like healing on the Sabbath, but he's telling that one to do some work, pick up his pallet. He can't do that on the Sabbath. That's against the law. That's against the legal system of Judaism, showing that the old law was giving way the one who had come to fulfill the law, Jesus Christ. So those miracles were unbelievable things. Now, we're also told he did other miracles along the way that, that we don't really have recorded for us in depth. But these are the ones that John chooses to show us that the old way, the old covenant, is giving way to the new covenant, that the legal system of Moses' law is being fulfilled in the Messiah that is coming. And, and, and Jesus is that one, and he's pointing to it with everything he does. Then he comes to the feeding of 5,000 five thousand people gathered around it's a, it's a, it's the time of the passover so a lot more people are in town in the area no doubt and preparing to observe the passover Jesus trying to get away on a mountainside with his disciples to just instruct them and, and be with them and minister to them. And the people heard he was coming and they heard about the signs. They'd even seen some of them, the signs that he had done, the miracles that he had done in, in the other places. And they started crowding in, 5,000 people crowding around to see this one who had done healings and who had done these things that they had heard about when he performed them on the sick. And they drew close and they came very near. When they got close by, Jesus looked out at them and said, Well, what are we going to do to feed these people? As he looked at his disciple Philip, How are we going to, where are we going to buy bread? And how are we going to buy bread? That was Philip's question because he knew that we don't have the money, we don't have the kind of money it would take to even give a little bit of bread to these people. And Jesus had set them down, and, and then Andrew says, well, there is this one guy with five barley loaves, five loaves of bread, and two fish, but what will that do for 5,000 people? That's enough for the, for the kids' lunch, and that's about all. And Jesus began to To pray, he gave thanks, and he began to distribute it with his disciples going among the people. And all of a sudden, the people began to eat, and they ate of bread, and they ate of fish until they were filled. And then he said to his disciples, go out and and gather up everything that's left. And there were 12 baskets left over, and they brought them back and brought them to Jesus. And here was all of this stuff. None of it wasted. All of it preserved out of five barley loaves and two little fish. Now, I know that there are some in higher criticism, will say, well, you know, what really happened that day was that that, uh, uh, everybody had their lunch with them, but they didn't want to have to share it with anybody, so they kind of hid it, and they put it under their cloaks, and they they kept it hid away, and they weren't going to let anybody see what they had. Afraid Jesus would say to them, why don't you share that with your neighbor? And they had what they wanted, and they weren't going to share that. But yet, when this one little boy, you know, just a little lad, uh, was so generous and so kind that he said to Jesus, here are my five loaves, and here's my two fish. Here, take these, and and, and you can use them. Then they all said, oh, well, we're so embarrassed that this kid did that. We'll take out our food. And everybody took out their food, and they began to eat. And oh, what a miracle that was that Jesus got people to get their lunch out and eat their own lunch. Isn't that a miracle? That's not what happened. There's several things you see in this miracle here that are vitally important to understand about Jesus. First of all, I want you to see that this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the gospels, apart from the resurrection, apart from the, the crucifixion of Christ, but the miracles in his ministry. The only one that all four gospel writers choose to zero in and say, this is important. We've talked about how the, the writers are writing from different perspectives. They're seeing different things. They've, you know, it, it's kind of like. Four people who would see a, a car wreck, they would give a different description of what took place. They're, they're looking at it from their perspective, out through their eyes, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, in different ways. But they're all reporting the same thing. But on this miracle, everybody thought it was important that we say, this is what took place on the hillside in Tiberias when Jesus fed 5,000 people. And it wasn't about him getting people to get their lunches out from under their cloaks and feed them. But rather, the first thing we see in this miracle, I think, is we see something about Christ's almighty power. We see something about his omnipotence. We see something about his deity that comes forth very strong and very clear that here is one who can take and create out of nothing something. It's the same creative power that took place in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1:1, when God spoke and said, let there be light and there was light and he said, let, the, let all of this happen and all that was, was, was created on that day was, was created because of his spoken word. And we're told in the Scripture that Jesus is the Word who was there with God, in the beginning with God, and all things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. And He was there. He was creating alongside the Father, the Godhead creating together. And this one Jesus Christ is also one who has absolute, omnipotent, complete, mighty, almighty power. And He creates from nothing. He, he calls forth to existence... That which did not exist before. That's the essence of this miracle that John wants us to see and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke want us to see. That here is one who comes from the Father, who is one with the Father. Here is the one who has been promised for generations, is the Messiah, and he has come and now he's showing his creative power even in feeding 5,000 people and having all this bread left over to fill 12 baskets after. The situation has taken place. We see the almighty power of Christ. We see the creative power of Christ out of nothing, creative power of Christ, the ability to call into existence that which not, did not exist before, just like in the beginning when he created everything that there was. I mean, I want you to see here that this is not just Jesus doing some kind of hocus pocus. He's not doing some kind of magic trick. There's there's no illusion taking place here. Jesus is doing what Jesus does in in creating out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, so that the people might be fed. The people's bellies being filled is secondary to seeing who Jesus is. Uh, It's glorious, and we'll see that that, that that does play into it, their bellies being filled and their 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 hunger being satisfied. But I want you to understand that is secondary to seeing who Christ is. He is the Messiah. He is, he is God incarnate, and He's showing it through His creative power. I think there's another lesson here to be said that, that goes beyond that one. For another thing, I think we see them in this miracle a lesson about the office of believers. Of his disciples, you and me in this world. They went out and ministered the bread. They carried the fish and the bread among them after Jesus blessed it and, and began to multiply it. They carried the sufficiency of the bread and the fish among the people and then gathered up what was left over at the end. You know, his, the whole business of Christ's work is, is, for us is to be a faithful distributor of the food which he provides. They were faithful distributors of bread and fish. We are to be faithful distributors of the gospel, the real bread of life. Now, we're not going to get to it today, but, but in just a couple of three weeks, we're going to get over to verse 35 in chapter 6. And there Jesus is going to give us his exposition of this miracle. He, he's going to give us a discourse on understanding why he fed the 5,000. And there he's going to say very simply three, uh, several words, I didn't count them first, and I don't want to be guilty of saying a number and giving another number. I am the bread of life. Five words. That's going to be his key. That's going to be the key to understanding this passage. It's not physical bread. It's not physical fish that are important, but it's important to understand that he is the bread of life. He he is the one who gives life, and when you eat of him, when you are, are partaking of him, then you have life in yourself. And he's going to deal with that and give Some of you are just getting the reference. Never mind. But it, it goes to the heart of who he is. And it goes to the heart of who we are and what we are to do. Once he has discharged his office in our life to change us, to give us life, we are to be the waiters that carry spiritual food to other people. Pure and simple. We're not cooks. We don't create it. We don't spice it up. We don't change it. We just serve it to those who have a need. And so we see the the power of Christ in creating. We see the the call of his disciples, you and me in this world, to be a distributor of the food which he has. And thirdly, in this miracle, we see a lesson about the food. And, And the real food is the sufficiency of the gospel for the needs of all mankind. We see here in this miracle the, the sufficiency of the gospel. Yes, in the miracle, it's the f- sufficiency of the bread. As a matter of fact, that's what, what Philip asked him. You know, 200 denarii uh, uh, worth of bread is not sufficient for them, it's not sufficient to, to meet their need. And Jesus said, I want you to understand, Philip, and I want Andrew to understand, and I want the other apostles to understand, and he wants us to understand at Grace Baptist Church. 2,000 years later, I want you to understand that the real bread is the the gospel and, and there is a sufficiency of the gospel for the needs of every person who takes and eats of that bread. There's a sufficiency of the gospel that we need to see in this passage. There can be no doubt that this is meant to teach the adequacy the sufficiency, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to, be, uh, to, to, to meet the needs of anybody who places their trust and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does it with bread and fish. He does it with physical bellies, but he does it so that we might see that sufficiency. Carried by faithful messengers, it feeds and supplies all ranks and all classes. It's it's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He said, the preaching of the cross is to those who perish foolishness, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. And this bread represents the power of God in the gospel, sufficient for the needs of all. But I want you to notice in in verse 2 and in verse 15... Not just the miracle itself, not just the the power of Christ, but I want you to see the attitudes of the people because it's very important. We live in a day, which you've probably heard me express before, we live in a day where there's a desperate need in our churches to have a gospel-centered, a Christ-centered message rather than a Bible-belt religion, okay? Okay. Because Bible Belt Christianity is based on legalism, it's, it's based on what I can do, it's based on, on meism, if you will, and Christianity, gospel-centered Christianity, is not what would Jesus do, but it's what has Jesus done in the cross and in his resurrection. What has he done in the gospel, and what is it that we are to take to the world to hear? It's not what I can do, it's what Christ has done. And that's the question we have to ask. Well, these people, they come along, and in verse 2 it says, a large crowd followed him. Why did they follow him? Because they saw the signs he was performing. They, they saw that he was healing the sick and, and the lame, and, and they, they, they wanted to get in on the fun. They wanted to get in on the excitement, and boy, did they. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be sitting on that grass and, and been fed by five be- loaves of bread and two fish? I mean, that would have been excitement beyond words. It would have been, I mean, I just would imagine that the people would have been almost in a a frenzy over what was taking place. And this man can do it. And you know, if he were our king and we got rid of all these Romans around here, he could do this every day. We wouldn't have to work. We wouldn't have to Squander? We wouldn't have to. We wouldn't have to be poor. I mean, I mean, somebody that can feed five thousand people with five bar uh, loaves of bread and two barley, uh, two fish, five barley loaves and two fish. I mean, that kind of man, he can just stand up as our king and say, "Eat, enjoy. What do you want? You want this? Have this." I mean, it'd be almost like a smorgasbord. Just take what you want and go on your way. Wait a minute. That that sounds like. 21st century? Churchianity, doesn't it? That sounds like a lot of what's going on today. It says in verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain again. You you see, verse 15 shows the difference. It, It really does point to the difference between religion and the gospel. Between what it means to be religious and what it means to, be, uh, to sort of have that Bible Belt religion and, and what it means to have the gospel message and believe in true Christianity, the gospel of Christ, it, it really does. Because you see, in this verse, you, you find very quickly that the people's attitude was all about them. It's all about me. I, I want my belly filled. I want to see people healed from being sick. I want to see people raised from the dead. I want to see people who can't walk get up and be able to pick up their pallet and and walk away with it. I mean, this is what I want. I want a Jesus. I want a Christianity that does everything that I want and everything that I need. I want a Christianity that just makes me feel really good. You look at... Much of the evangelism methods that we have, what are they focused on? They're, they're, they throw Jesus in to some degree, but they're focused on, hey, here's what it can be for you. You come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. I've heard people say that. You come to Jesus and you'll have great peace and you'll have great joy and you'll have happiness. And, and, and Some of you go so far to say, if you come to Jesus and you really trust him, you'll be healthy and wealthy and wise for the rest of your life. And the wise really doesn't matter, just healthy and wealthy. That's what these people wanted. They said, Lord, we, we want you to be our king. We want to take you away and we want to set you on the throne. And then tomorrow you can give us not just loaves of fish and, and not just loaves of bread and fish, but tomorrow you can give us something far better. And we'll feast and we'll enjoy and we'll love it as long as you keep doing it. See religion is all about me the gospel is all about Jesus because you see when it came to the point where he's about to go to the cross it would come to the point where he's really saying some hard things the people back away and they say no no crucify him crucify him give us Barabbas We, we don't want him anymore he's no longer feeding us he's no longer doing the the wowing things for us we we're not entertained anymore give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus we're done with him Christianity is about Him. It's about us focusing on Him and seeing His glory and trusting in Him, not trusting in ourselves, not just seeing what we can get out of it. Because you see, a step further, that Bible Belt religion, for the most part, just this idea of just religion over Christianity or apart from Christianity, is it, really sees Jesus as a means to an end. I come to Jesus so that I can get here. Even if it's, I want to. when I die, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. So I realize that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So here's what I want to do. Jesus, I want to come to you because I want to go to heaven when I die. But, but don't make any demands on my life now. Just give me good stuff. Just, just give me good stuff and, 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 and take me to heaven when I die and everything will be great. You and I will be great. That's, that's religion. sees Jesus as an end. The gospel, Christianity, recognizes that Jesus is the end. He's the beginning, He's the end, He's everything. It's like the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, listen, here's my, ba- here's my passion in life. Here's my goal in life. Now, here's a man who started churches, who's done evangelism, who's done missions like nobody else in the history of the church. He's seen multitudes and multitudes come to faith in Christ. And, boy, that's important. That's great. But here's what he says to the Philippian Christians 20 years after his salvation. This is what he says is his driving desire in life, that I may know him. CHRIST that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be conformed even to his death. This matter of Christianity, evangelism, missions are all important and they're all necessary and they're all a part of taking the fragments, taking the bread, taking the gospel to our world and we're called to do that. But my friend, we will never do that if we see that as the end. We'll only do that when we see knowing Jesus Christ and knowing him alone as what we're on this earth for. And all that other will flow out of that. Missions will flow out of that. Evangelism will flow out of that. True worship will flow out of that. That I may know him. That I may come to the end of my road and say with the Apostle Paul, I've run the race and I've finished the course and I've kept the faith and I know Jesus Christ intimately. Wow. Religion says, hey, I want Jesus because I don't want to die and go to hell. I want Jesus because I think he can make me feel better. I think he can take away my sadness. I think he can can pick me up and make me feel better. He may do that sometimes, but what are you going to do when your life falls apart and Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm going to fix that right now. But he says, you know, you're going to learn something through this. I'm going to teach you some great truths through this. I don't want to learn any great truths. I just want to be feeling good. That's pretty much 21st century Bible Belt religion it reminds me of a story that Charles Spurgeon told Spurgeon tells it's kind of a parable of Spurgeons I guess but Spurgeon said you know there was this peasant farmer the peasant farmer grew the biggest carrot he had ever grown huge carrot big carrot and he took that carrot, and because he was a loyal subject of his king, he took that carrot to the king, and he said, oh, king, as he bowed before him, he said, this is a carrot that I grew on my farm, on my land. It's the biggest carrot I've ever grown. It's probably the biggest carrot I'll ever grow, and oh, king, I bring this to give it to you because I want to honor you through this carrot, and he gave him the carrot. The king said, oh, blessed are you, my subject, said I want to give you Hundred acres of land and said it's to it's beside your farm, it'll extend your farm, go in peace and, and grow your farm even greater. Well, the there was a nobleman standing nearby and he thought, Wow, you got a hundred acres of land from the king for a carrot? I wonder what he would do if he got a really nice gift. So, this nobleman happened to, to raise horses, raise stallions, and so. The next day he came into the, the king's court and he had his prize black stallion with him and he was leading him along and he bowed before the king and he said, oh king, I want, you, I want to give my prize stallion to you. It's the greatest stallion I've ever bred. It's the greatest stallion I've ever had and I'll never have another one like it and I want to give it to you, oh great king. And the king looked at him and said, thank you. And he took the stallion and had it led off to the barn. The nobleman just stood there, honestly looking quite perplexed. A carrot got 100 acres. My stallion got a thank you. The king looked at him and said, oh, I, are you waiting for something? He said, well, he said, oh, I, I understand, but, but you need to understand something. The peasant yesterday came and gave his carrot to me. You came today and gave your stallion to yourself. Now think about that. Why do we come to Christ? Why do we serve Christ? Why do we worship Christ? Why do we bow before Him? Is it because we really just want to offer unto Him praise and glory and honor, and He's the end of it all? And and if there's nothing else, if, if nothing else happens and given to us, then we will rejoice because we know Him? Or do we come and give because... As some would tell us, if you give a hundred dollars, you're going to get a thousand back. You know, if you sow a seed of a thousand dollars, you're going to get a hundred thousand back. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're. If you're sly and you're coy and you play it just right and look sincere and, and come and you give to God, whatever, whatever you give to God, man, God's going God's to gonna give it back to you a bunch more. So the more you bring, the better it is. I've heard preachers make, try to build their budgets on that. But what we see in this passage here is that it's all about him. You know, the, the, the irony is thing is, in verse 15, it says, the, 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 Jesus perceived that the people were intending to, to come and take him by force and make him king. Ha! can't make him king. He is king. Oh, I know they want to make him the king of Israel. They want to make him the king of the country and get the Romans out. But, folks, the problem is, You don't don't try to make him king of anything. You recognize, you you observe, you see that he is King Jesus. And you bow before him. And you say, Lord, I just come and I, I give myself to you not to get anything in return. I come to give myself to you. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. That's the, relig- that's the difference between you know, self-centeredness and Christ-centeredness. That's the difference in Jesus being a means to an end and Jesus being the end itself, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him. Not just like I know about somebody. It's not just a superficial knowledge that I could say this morning that, you know, I I know the President of the United States. I know Barack Obama because I see him on TV every day. And and if he walked in a room, I'd know exactly who he is. I could point him out in a crowd. I know the President of the United States, but I don't know him. I I could also say, well, I, you know, I, I know Ronald Reagan because one day in Jackson, Mississippi, I walked up to Ronald Reagan at the Jackson Airport, and, and I stuck out my hand, and he stuck out his hand, and I said, uh, Governor Reagan, I'm, I'm uh, Bill Haynes. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor, and he shook my hand, and he said, well, how about that, and you're here to see me. I thought all you Southern Baptists were for Jimmy Carter. I mean, we established some rapport there, you know. I knew him a whole lot better than I know the current president, who I've never met, but I didn't really know Ronald Reagan. I know my wife. I've been married to her for 40 years. I know a lot about her. I thought I knew her the day I married her. <laughs> but I, I learned that I didn't really, and I probably don't fully yet. But I'm I'm spending hopefully another 20 years or so, Lord. Uh, Tarries and gives that to me, it gets to know her even better. But, but I know my wife a whole lot better than I know Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama. I know her intimately. That's what Paul says I want. I want an intimate relationship with Christ. I don't come to him just because. As a matter of fact, Paul said, Paul said, listen, I, I don't get everything I ask from him. You know, I've got this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. All sorts of speculations, and you can read about a thousand different theories about what it was. I don't know what it was. But I tell you something, it was something he didn't like. It was something that really bothered him. It was something that just ate at him day and night, so much so that he said, I went to the Lord three times. Three times I prayed, and I don't think he's just counting one, two, three. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. I think he's saying... I I went before the Lord in a perfect manner. I went before the Lord in a triune manner. I went before the Lord and I begged him. I pleaded with him, Lord, take this away. It hurts. It bothers me. It's a thorn in my flesh. Jesus didn't take it away. He said, no, Paul, you need that. Because that thorn in your flesh will remind you that my grace, my gospel, my truth is sufficient even when you don't get everything you ask for. These people were asking for him to be king of Israel. He said, no. No, I'm already king. You just have to see it and acknowledge it and understand it. Yeah, I'd ask you this morning, you bringing Jesus a carrot or are you bringing him a stallion? Are, are you coming to Christ and, 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 and worshiping and, 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 and giving and everything because, hey, maybe if I do this, I will get something back like the nobleman did? Like these people did? Man, if we can get Jesus as our king, he can feed us every day. And if we get sick, we don't have to worry about a doctor. We can just be healed because that's what he does. You come to him and say, Lord, though though the crops may fail, though my bank account may go to zero, though my stocks and bonds may tank tomorrow, though my retirement fund may dry up and I be on the street, yet will I worship you. Because I'm not worshiping you for stuff. I'm worshiping you because of who you are. Yeah, I think it's a test we all need to take. It's a question we all need to ask. What is our motivation? What brings us to say Jesus is Lord? Well, I know the Holy Spirit does that if we're truly believers. But what is our motivation? What is your motivation? Let's pray. What a miracle, Lord. It would have kind of been fun to have been there in the midst of that crowd and and seen it all take place. But, Lord, I know that if I'd been there, I would have been the first in the line to try to get you to be king so you could keep on feeding me. And, Lord, I trust you with all that I have. And I trust you, Lord, that you love me and you're going to care for me. And and part of that caring is going to mean you're going to let some thorns be there in my flesh that I'd rather be taken away, but Lord, that you are sufficient in the midst of that. Father, teach us. Teach us to say with the Apostle Paul that to know you is our, is our passion. To know Him, to know you and the power of your resurrection in our own life every day. To live in obedience to your truth. Not legalistically, but gratitudinally, gratefully. Father, deliver us from Bible Belt religion. we might share your gospel. Father, speak to us this morning by your word and by your Holy Spirit. Draw men and women to yourself in faith. I pray for those who hear that that don't know you. I pray your Holy Spirit will open their hearts and their eyes to see their need for a Savior and to believe in Jesus as the only Savior, be glorified, Father. Be glorified. We rest and we trust in the cross of Christ. We glory, we boast, we brag in the cross of Christ. And nothing else. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.